Welcome to NISA Talks, a general election podcast. Today we're going to talk about the economy. I'm Jogjit Chadha, the Director of the National Institute of Economic Social Research, and I'm delighted uh, this afternoon to have in the studio with me uh, Gary Young, who's the Director of Macroeconomics, Modelling and Forecasting here at the Institute, and Amit Kara, who is our Head of Global Themes. So, as we turn to the economy, um, Gary, can you give us an indication as we have the election ahead of us what would you say has been the impact of the Brexit process so far on the UK economy? Well, I think there's a number of developments um, we've seen in the economy over the last three years. For example, business investment has been very weak. So um, we think it's about 15% below where you might have expected it to be, given the low financing cost. So it hasn't plummeted, it's just not grown. So what you've got is, you know, you can imagine that you know, normally you'd expect investment to be growing year mm. on year, particularly mm. with low financing costs. Mm. But um, that hasn't happened, it's just pretty much gone sideways. So, so there's this sort of 15% gap now. So just to understand that, so that there was a level of business investment in the economy uh, that was at a particular level in 2016, and it just hasn't grown as you would have anticipated. That's it, it's and it's the same kind of level. Is, is that it's the right way to think about same, it? It's pretty much the same level as it was, yeah. And normally you would have expected mm. it to grow given the um, strength of the world economy and low financing costs in the UK. And I think we understand why that is. It's because firms, who, a lot of whom are exporters, don't exactly know what the trading relationship is going to be in the future. And as a consequence of that, they've just put off making um, decisions about investments. They just haven't done any investment. And that's kind of in a lot of the surveys that have been done of businesses. Another thing is that productivity is another thing that's hardly changed at all. So... Productivity has grown by 1.2% over the last three years, mm. which is a pretty low rate. Now, I have to say, though, that this is a, a long-standing problem for the UK. Mm. We've had a productivity uh, stagnation for several years. Mm. So it's, mm. it's just that the Brexit situation hasn't helped, I think. I, I'm kind of old enough to remember when I was at university, lecturers then telling me that UK productivity was lagging behind that of Europe, and I don't want to embarrass myself by saying how many years ago that is. Mm. Um, and, and you've said that yourself in a sense in which the UK has had a long-standing productivity puzzle. Mm. But can you help people or help me understand why the Brexit process may further act to limit the progress of productivity in the economy? What What is going on there exactly? Well, I think one thing is what I mentioned before, weak business investment. So mm. normally you'd expect mm. investment to be strong and alongside that you mm. tend to get productivity growth, so that's mm. one thing. Mm. Another thing is that businesses have been wasting time really preparing for Brexit oh, and these different, different um, cliff edges we've had mm. where they've been making preparations and mm. you know, nothing has actually happened in the end. So it's just been, it's taken up a lot of people's time and their bandwidth as it were for making decisions. So that's um, potentially another reason why productivity has been weak. Also another one is that the figures released today on migration, net migration has been low. We have fewer people coming into the country looking for work, so there's less people around. And, and uh, you know, it may be that the skills are being used now are not as good as some of those that might have come from the, from the migrants. Um, that's a bit speculative, but that's another potential explanation. So in a sense, if I'm, if I'm running a firm that would otherwise be a high productivity firm, I'm holding back on investment number one, and number two, you've got a limited capacity of managers and senior people. And rather than thinking about innovative new processes or thinking about developing the educational attainment of staff, 
I've been planning for a sequence of dead ends, which is the Brexit actually occurring. Is, is, that, is that one way of thinking that, about that, what you just said? That's what saying? people have been saying, yeah. I think that, right. and that sort of rings, rings true to me. So that, that's another thing, that's another Brexit-related um, issue. And the other thing is the pound has been ah. weaker. So ah. the pound is about 15%. It's not 15% here, but the pound is about 15% um, weaker than it was in the run-up to the referendum, which is probably related um, to the decision to leave the EU. And as a consequence of that, import prices are higher than they would otherwise have been. So just to give you some figures, in the 39 months since the referendum, mm -hmm. import prices have grown by 11%. In the 39 months leading up to the referendum, they, they fell by 7%. So you've had a turnaround mm -hmm import prices which again is something which hits people's living standards and makes them worse off. That's really interesting. So it hits living standards but in a sort of classical view of the economy when you have a lower exchange rate it helps competitiveness and should lead to faster growth. So I mean why hasn't that happened this time for the UK? Can you help us understand that? So I think, I think in part it's because of the uncertainty around mm. uh, Brexit but not just Brexit. I think mm. it's also the uncertainty about around global trade. I see. Um, so, um, you know, alongside Brexit, we've had uh, this ongoing spat between uh, the United States and China mm -hmm. around trade. And the UK has been uh, caught in the crossfire. Uh, not directly because, uh, you know, it's not like US and Chinese trade goes through the United Kingdom. Mm. But there's the, the, the sort of trade spat that these two very large countries are having, has created this huge sense of uncertainty, mm. adding to the Brexit uncertainty. Mm. Uh, and that's sort of, as a result of that, global trade has slowed down. And that's, and you know, we, as I said, we've just been caught in that crossfire. Uh, but just go back to the point about having a lower exchange rate for our imported goods. Why doesn't that translate into more competitiveness for our exported goods? In, well, in I mean, in part trading world, right? So, about? so we are we yeah. are part of very sort of intricate global mm. value chains, yes, of course. Uh, and uh, and and you know these these effects of exchange rates do not necessarily feed through into volumes, mm. Mm. but they do have an impact on the profits. Mm. So the lower exchange rate mm. will benefit our exporters. Their, their profit margins mm. uh, will increase, even if we are not seeing an increase in, uh, in the amount of uh, uh, exports. One, one point that, that uh, both Gary and you talked about a lot is, is the clear importance of, of productivity in, in prosperity. Mm. And, and I kind of wonder to what extent trade itself has been a driver of productivity or, or does it reflect productivity and are we now entering a world in which trade is not going to grow in the same way as it did before and does that ultimately leave our future prosperity more stranded than it would otherwise have been because we're not going to see this massive growth in trade that we've seen I would argue in the last quarter of a century. Yeah I mean trade has been growing faster than GDP since the middle of uh, the 1980s Goodness me. up until uh, say the financial crisis mm. and uh, in the last couple of years for the reasons that we just talked about which is uh, which is these, these, these trade disputes mm. you know that growth has has slowed down quite dramatically and probably even reversed I mean to your question about uh, what impact will that have on productivity and therefore ultimately living standards I mean there's plenty of evidence that says that you know tra open trade encourages innovation you know multinational companies bring in the sort of best of class management techniques and there are spillover effects uh, into um, 
companies and, and, and within the region where these companies are located mm-hmm. as well. So, so I think there's a Japanese effect. In absolutely, a effect. absolutely. Yes. And, uh, you know, insofar as we are exiting uh, from a very large trading uh, association, mm. the attraction of the UK as a destination for foreign direct investment may be diminished. And to mm. that extent, we may suffer because we are not going to be the recipients of these best practices. That's, that's, um, that's an important issue. I, Gary, if I could then t- turn to you uh, and sort of wonder to what extent are the UK um, prospects or current performance simply reflecting what's going on in the rest of the world? Or has the UK become detached because of this Brexit? Uh, process that we're going through. No, it hasn't become detached. I think it's um, not growing as much as it would have done because of, partly because of the Brexit issues we spoke about earlier, mm. and partly because the world economy is a bit weaker. So I think what we found is that the UK has performed relatively poorly since mm. the referendum. So to give you some mm. figures on that, um, before a referendum or around 2016. Mm. The UK and the OECD economies were growing at the same rate of about 2%. Right, I see. year after that, the OECD economies picked up. Remember, 2017 was quite a good year for the world economy. Mm. Growth was about 2.7% in the OECD, whereas in the UK it was still about 2%. So mm. it didn't pick up at that right, time, even though other countries were. And in 2018, things slowed a bit. OECD mm. to mm. 2.3%. UK slowed to 1.4%. And then this year, it looks like OECD growth is going to be about 1.6%, and UK 1.4%. So in every year since the referendum, UK has grown less quickly. Mm. Yeah, it sort of followed the trends in the world economy, mm. but it's, it's sort of lagging behind. The growth is lagging behind. If you add up those differences, mm. it comes to about 2%, which is roughly a rare, mm. rare estimate as of how much weaker the UK is. And it should have been. Um, right. in the absence of the Brexit. So it was very hard in macroeconomics to think of what we call the counterfactual, but yeah. we're painting a picture, uh, if I understand you both correctly, that because of the Brexit process, the, the announcement of the referendum, the uncertainty as to what path will follow, indeed when we'll follow it, as well as all the political uncertainty about where the country is going to go, the economy looks as though it's some 2% smaller than it would otherwise have been had we not gone through this process. Is that an appropriate summary of where we are yeah, so I, I think so. And I think just to give you another number on this. Thank you. In the there is an EU business confidence indicator, which is you know it's an indicator collected by the EU across all different countries. Mm. And in the UK, that currently in the service sector, which is the main sector for the UK, yes, that indicator stands at minus twenty one point four, right, which is about twenty five percentage points below its average. Right. Whereas in the rest of the mm. EU, that indicator stands at three point seven only six percentage points below its average. So, so there's a big yeah. gap between the UK and the... Uh, so that's, that the sounds, to, even to me, a huge number. So I would say that even though there may be a, the possibility that some activities are being helped by the Brexit process, you know, lawyers and accountants and perhaps economists thinking about what might happen to the economy, the overall impact is still negative as people are trying to decide where we're going to go next. Is that, is that, that a fair statement? That's exactly it, yeah. So, I mean, can, so we're in this situation, and the Institute in a number of times have described what's going on in the British economy as a slow puncture. What kind of policies should we be looking for any incoming government to adopt to offset this process that, whether we leave or not on January the 31st, 2020, will mean we still have another long Brexit process to continue? It's surely not going to disappear. And given what we've observed so far, this slow puncture may continue for quite some time to come. So what policies would you want to see any government come in, of whatever ever persuasion? 
So I think I think the first point to be made is, you know, ever since the referendum, I think it's been clear to us at the Institute that, you know, looking across Whitehall, there's been something of a policy paralysis. Mm. So, you know, different departments, I mean, they've all been totally engaged and ministers have been totally engaged yeah. in the Brexit process to the cost of other policies. Yeah. We saw that most clearly this year with the Treasury, uh, the budget process, the, the spending review, the economic forecast from the Office for Budget Responsibility. The, the entire timetable yeah. hasn't worked as it should. Mm. Now, you know, one could say that this doesn't have an immediate effect, mm. but these things have a lingering effect. Mm. They add to the uncertainty that we talked about that yeah. businesses are facing. Yes. And I think the first thing that should be done is really to, to lift that uncertainty, right. to get back to something that is a little more normal, a more stable government, and, right. and, 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 and clear policy outlines. So, so the kind of provision of public goods, which is what we expect from Whitehall, has itself been stymied by exactly the same process. We've talked a lot about the private sector and firms delaying behaviour, but Whitehall has done so as well as a reflection of the paralysis that you've just talked about. Absolutely, and that's costly, and that is costly. And I want to turn to, to Gary, if I may. I, it's one of the responses that we're seeing is to say, well, if, not, if, if that, there's not enough activity and there's not any paralysis, maybe the government can spend more. And so what we've seen almost is a spending... Uh, war with with both sets of parties saying they're going to increase expenditure by quite a lot. And I wonder to what extent you think that makes sense. Well, I think that there are certain things that we do need to spend more on. So I'm sort of quite behind um, policies to improve the infrastructure, which is, mm. a, which is a big issue. I'm mm. behind policies to improve training and I'm keen with policies to yeah, so generally move in that direction, but mm. there there is a worry that people are going to spend too much too fast when the economy is already in. Although we've got a slow puncture, mm. as you describe it, that that you know we, we don't want to try and load too much on the economy at a time when there's quite high levels of employment already, and yes. and so you, you know, you're going to crowd out other activities by putting mm. too much activity into the economy mm. if you do it too quickly. So. Mm. That'd be one thing I'd be cautious about. I think the other thing I'd be cautious about is that there are some very serious long-term challenges facing the UK economy. You know, some are to do with climate change, which Amit could tell you a bit more about. Um, but some of them are just to do with something that's closer to my mm. heart, which is an ageing population. <laughs> you, and, you and me uh, both, Gary. Uh, you and me both. And the need to, um, to recognise the fact that with an ageing population, mm. we're going to have to spend more overtime on health and mm. social care pensions and these mm. sorts of things and if we're going to do that when, and these and the sums of money we're talking about are, are substantial then we're going to need to start preparing for it now I think mm. that means that we're going to have to start paying higher taxes mm. in the long run I think people should be sort of you know not being kidded on that there can mm. be tax cuts but to, to sort of recognize that there is a long-term challenge that we're facing which is inevitably going to face higher I mean higher taxes and people should be sort of getting ready for that and thinking about how you know, where best can we raise those taxes? So a more realistic approach to the fact that there will be further claims on the government purse in the future. Absolutely, rather than, absolutely. Rather than having this uh, illusion that, in a sense, money can be created out of nothing by the government. Absolutely. I mean, is there anything you want to add to that, particularly with your climate change work that you've been championing at the Institute over the last year, um, in terms of taxes, perhaps? Or? So, I mean, I think this is one example where... Um, you know, at the global level, there is need for a multilateral framework. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. Climate change is a global issue. It requires yes. an enormous amount of coordination. Yes. It requires an enormous, enormous amount of policing mm. as well. And um, it's, 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 it's an area where there is a strong need to, to, to impose some kind of taxation to discourage carbon emissions. It's an area where you know, we need to understand who's going to be bearing these costs mm. and we need to create support systems for those who are most uh, vulnerable. Mm. And, and, and at the same time, I mean, Gary talked about the need for, for, for sort of long-term infrastructure spending. Mm. There, is, there is also a need to understand which are the technologies mm. that can help counter or, or, or address these sort of climate challenges that mm. we have. And maybe there's a case for the government to to think about how they can support uh, those kind of industries at the at, at the national level, yes. and which you know which sort of brings an opportunity mm. to the country as well. So I mean there are two sides to this. It's enormous. I, I think the the fact that you're both talking about taxes and you talk about government capability, and theme that came through an earlier podcast on on minimum wages is the importance for institution building, and deciding what we need to do. There's clearly an enormous task for government whether we Brexit or not, or when we Brexit, and however we Brexit, but alongside all of that discussion with the European Union, there seems to be an enormous agenda for economic policy in this country. I want to thank you, Amit Kara and Gary Young, for joining us in the studio this afternoon. I'm Jogjit Chadha of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. Thank you very much.